is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. Good Saturday morning. Dick Donahue with you with Wolf Wake Up Live here on KGMI. Happy to be with us. The programming note, I will note right now starting out, uh, I'm going to combine a little bit of the Saturday and Sunday show today. We will be on tomorrow's show at our normal 9 o'clock hour, but because of the Mariners broadcast coming in at 930, uh, we will have a shortened show tomorrow. So some of the material that I'll cover today would also be some of that material that I would cover tomorrow. So let's start out with the weekly wrap for this week. And the major indices registered sizable declines this week. Softness in mega caps had a disproportionate influence on index performance. There was no effort to rotate anywhere else. Many stocks came along for the downside ride. All 11 S&P 500 sectors finished in the red this week. The consumer discretionary is down 6.4%, real estate down 5.4%, materials down 3.7%, where the top laggards, while the healthcare sector was down 1.2%, and it saw the slimmest loss. The catalyst for the weakness, another big jump in Treasury yields. The two-year note yield climbed at eight basis points this week to 5.12%. The 10-year note yielded climbed 12 basis points this way to 4.44%. Including this week's move, the 10-year note yield is up 35 basis points this month. These moves are largely in response to the Fed's hawkish pause on Wednesday. As expected, the FOMC voted unanimously to leave the target rate for the Fed funds rate unchanged at five and a quarter to five and a half percent. There are a few changes in the directive itself, but the market was focused on the summary of economic projections and dot plot, which conveyed two key takeaways. One, policy rates are anticipated to remain higher for longer, and two, federal officials are not expected to cut rates in 24 as much as they were anticipated when they updated their forecasts in June. The median Fed funds rate, estimated for 23, was unchanged at 5.6%, but the median estimate for 24 was 5.1% versus 4.6 in June. The former estimate suggested officials are still learning and leaning in favor of one more rate hike this year, whereas the latter revision connotes an expectation that rates will come down by only a half a point in 24 as opposed recently to 1% basis point when estimates were provided in June. Meanwhile, the median estimate for 25 was 3.9% versus 3.4 in June, and a median estimate of 2.9% was introduced for 26. The longer-term red fund rates estimate was as remained at 2.5% leaving one to infer that the Fed is going to stay committed to a 2% inflation target. Fed Chair Powell said several times in a press conference that the Fed is going to proceed carefully when thinking about making a policy move, but said it's plausible that the neutral rate is higher than the longer-term rate of 2.5%, which he said is part of the explanation of why the economy has been more resilient than expected. The wrinkle in the market wasn't that the Fed is decidedly hawkish at this point. It was that the Fed is still not dovish. More Fed officials echoed Mr. Powell's uh, view later this week, specifically San Francisco Fed President Daly, who's a 24 FOMC voter, Fed Governor Bowman, who's an OFA, who is an FOMC voter, and Boston Fed President Collins, who's not an FOMC voter this year or next year, all made similar comments on Friday. Other central banks also made policy announcements this week. The Bank of England voted five to four to leave its bank rate unchanged at five and a quarter percent. The Hong Kong Monetary Authority left its key rate unchanged at 575. The Swiss National Bank left its rate unchanged at 175. The Bank of Japan made no changes in its policy stance and the Riksbank increased its rate by 25 basis points 
to 4%. The Norges Bank increased its key rate by 25 basis points to 4.25%. In corporate news, there were two notable initial public offerings this week. Instacart and Calibo both traded above their IPO price after opening, but rolled over with the rest of the market by the end of the week. United Auto Workers extended its strike to all of its GM and Stalins, uh, which is Chrysler and Jeep parts and distribution centers, beginning at noon on Eastern Time on Friday. This followed confirmation that the U.S. had made progress in labor talks with Ford, but indicated that Chrysler and, and uh, Jeep, which is Stellantis, and General Motors are going to need some serious push pushing. On Monday, the stock market had a mixed showing following Friday's, last Friday's sell-off. The major indices settled after flat after pulling back from their highs of the day, following the trend of mega-cap stocks. The Russell 2000 was relatively weak, falling seven-tenths of 1%. The lack of conviction was driven by some hesitation ahead of the FOMC meeting on Wednesday. Apple was a source of support for the major indices after reaching favorably, reacting favorably to comments from analysts. Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis were standout laggards after the UAW rejected a Stellantis offer to increase its pay by nearly 21% over the contract term with a 10% immediate increase. Monday's economic data was limited to the NHHB housing index, which dropped to 45 in September from 50 in August. On Tuesday, the major indices ended the day in negative territory that closed well off their lows of the day, paced by the ebb and flow of the, media, the mega cap stocks. The mega cap growth index had been down 1% at its low before closing with a two-tenths of 1% loss. Other stocks, however, also improved in the afternoon trade. And after an interday pullback in crude oil was topped at $92 a barrel earlier in the session, added to the afternoon recovery effort. West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil Futures settled down four-tenths of 1% at $90.49 a barrel. The overall negative bias was partially driven by hesitation in front of Wednesday's FOMC announcement. Rising market rates acted as another headwind. Instacart was an individual stock standout. The company priced its IPO at $30 a share on Monday night, opened at trading at 42, but gave back a big chunk of that opening gain. Tuesday's economic data was limited to housing starts, which hits their lowest level in August, at 1.283 million units since June of 2020, and building permits, which is the leading indicator, which were up 6.9% month to over month, and a stronger than expected 1.543 million with permits for single units up 2%. And on Wednesday, the stock market started the session with a positive bias as the participants waited for the 2 p.m. Eastern time release of the FOMC decision. The early upside moves were supported by falling oil prices and market rates. The NASDAQ had a positive loss in the early going due, due, due to lagging mega caps, but the advanced decline line was positive and other major indices were in the green. Both the stock and bond market experienced volatile price action following the September FOMC statement. As expected, the FOMC voted unanimously to leave the target rate of the Fed tons rate unchanged at five and a quarter to five and a half. There were a few changes in the directive itself, but the market was focused on the summary of economic projections in the dot plot, which conveyed two key takeaways. One, policy rates are anticipated to remain higher for longer. And two, Fed officials are not expecting to cut rates in 24 as much as they were anticipating when they updated the forecast in June. The turbulent price action continued as Fed Chair Powell gave a press conference. And Powell said several times that the Fed is going to proceed carefully when thinking about making a policy move, but said it's possible that the neutral rate is higher than the long-term rate at 2.5%, which he said is part of the explanation for why the economy has been resilient, more resilient than expected. The wrinkle in the market wasn't that the Fed is decidedly hawkish at this point. It was that the Fed is still not dovish. 
Stock settled into a near steady decline in the late afternoon, led by the mega caps that left the S&P 500 just above its 4,400 level. Calival, which priced its IPO at $30, traded as high as $37 before pulling back with the rest of the market in the afternoon trade. So reviewing Wednesday's economic data, the weekly MBA mortgage applications index rose 5.4% with refines applications jumping 13% and purchase applications increasing 2%. The weekly EIA crude oil inventory showed a draw of 2.14 million barrels. That's versus last week's build of 3.96 million barrels. This is Dick Donahue with you with Wolf Wake Up Live. We'll be back after this quick break. The real ID date has changed. New ID requirements go into effect on May 7th, 2025. When traveling, you've got options. Now's the time to make sure you're covered. Another thing for the to-do list, I know, I know, along with replacing that smoke detector battery, dusting off that treadmill, writing those seven emails. No judgment, we all procrastinate, but now's your chance to get to it. If you're thinking about flying after May 7th, 2025, you should plan ahead. Time flies, and so should you. Don't delay, prepare today. Visit realidwa.com. Radio Real Estate with Mike Kent on KGMI. Every Saturday, I break down what's happened in the market. More importantly, I share expert insight as to what you can expect next with your Whatcom County real estate investment. Radio Real Estate is sponsored by Linden Sheet Metal, Windermere Real Estate, and Windwood Enterprises. 10 a.m. every Saturday on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM, and KGMI.com. Do you know a group or individual in our community who work tirelessly to make a difference? Dedicated to Service wants to give them a special shout-out on the air. Email the details to dedicated at cascaderadiogroup.com. Dedicated to Service brought to you by Neater House of Luxury, Whatcom County's premier jewelry store. Join Neater House of Luxury September 29th and 30th for an exclusive Gabriel and Company trunk show. Neater House of Luxury, 21 Bellwether Way, Suite 107, next to Lombardi's Back Patio. I had an important job, and it wasn't just a job. It was keeping my brothers and sisters safe. And coming back, it felt like kind of thrown away. If it hadn't been for Wounded Warrior Project, I honestly don't know if I would be here. It was like I got my family back again. We all felt the connection, like that brother and sisterhood. See how Wounded Warrior Project empowers women veterans like Donna by visiting woundedwarriorproject.org slash empowerwomenvets. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning here on KGMI. As always, thank you for being with us. We appreciate that. And we are Asset Advisors. We are located out on the Pacific Highway. The Pacific Highway is actually Old Highway 99. It's parallel to I-5, which is north of the Slater Road out in the Pacific Commerce Center. Our address is 5060 Pacific Highway, Suite 101, Ferndale, 98248. Our phone number, 360-733-1200. Give us a call. Love to talk to you. Talking going on with this week's uh, market summary. So we saw that on Thursday, the stock market had its downtrend day. The major indices were under pressure from the start. The faded to session lows in the late afternoon trade. The indices ultimately closed near those levels with losses ranging from 1.1 to 1.8%. The S&P 500, which closed down, just above 4,400 on Wednesday, spent the whole session below that level on Thursday. The biggest factor driving the weakness was the bump in mortgage and market rates that started Wednesday afternoon in response to the Fed's hawkish hold. Losses were broad-based, led by the mega-caps and growth stocks. The mega-cap growth ETF fell 2%. The Russell 3000 index fell 1.9%. There were some standout winners that had specific catalysts to account for the relative strength on this otherwise downbeat day. Paramount Global, uh, Warner's Brothers, Discovery, and Fox Corp. 
logged gains after CNBC reported that a resolution to the Hollywood writer's strike may have been maybe reached soon. While reviewing Thursday's economic data, we saw that weekly initial job claims were 201,000 and continuing claims were 1.662 million. The key takeaway from this report is that the low level of initial claims shows that the labor market is still operating in a tight mode, which is going to remain a basis for the Fed to keep operating with the restricted interest rate mindset. We also saw that the September Philadelphia Fed index was down, was minus 13 and a half. Now, prior month, it was up 12. So uh, reflection of the uh, car and auto industry and the strike that's going to go on and whatever is going to happen because that's a big industry area. Also, August's existing home sales were 4.04 million. In the prior month, they were at 4.07 million. So the key takeaways from these reports is that home, existing home sales continue to be crimped by confluence of factors, higher mortgage rates, and higher prices that are hurting affordability, limited supply, a lack of mobility due to remote work opportunities, and disinterest in moving by existing homeowners who are reluctant to give up the low rates of mortgages. We'll talk about that here in a little bit later segment today. August's leading indicators were down four-tenths of one percent. Prior was released was down three-tenths of one percent. And then uh, Friday, we saw that the uh, trade started in an upbeat note, with major indices all showing modest gains following this week's sell-off. The early positive bias, in part, was to buy on the dip mentality, which was supported by the price action of the Treasury market. The market started to decline coming out of the New York lunch hour. Downside moves were interrupted by a brief rebound effort, but the major indices only settled near their lows of the day. The deterioration was attributed to the San Francisco Fed President Daly's, who is a 2024 voter, who reportedly echoed the new party line that the Fed may have some more tightening to do. It's notable, however, that the two-year note, which is more sensitive to changes in the Fed funds rate, didn't react much as in Mrs. Daly's uh, acknowledgement. Technical factors may have played a bigger role in the afternoon slide after the S&P 500 was unable to clear initial resistance of 4,361, reaching a high of 4,357 on Friday. And the United Auto Workers confirmed reports that progress has been made in labor talks with Ford, but they indicated that the talks with Stellantis, which is Chrysler Jeep, and General Motors are going to need some serious pushing. Consequently, the UAAW extended its strike to all GM and Stella parts uh, uh, distribution centers beginning at noon Eastern time. Friday's economic calendar featured the preliminary S&P 500 Global U.S. Manufacturing PMI, which improved from August. The actual was 48.9. A month ago, it was 47.9, but it's still indicative of contraction, which is below the 50 reading. The S&P 500 Global U.S. Services PMI, meanwhile, still reflected expansion, but fell to 50.2 in this preliminary September reading. That was down from 50.5 in August. So year to date through Friday, we now have the Dow Jones Industrial Average up 2.5%. The NASDAQ is up 26.2%. The S&P 500 is up 12.5%. And the Russell 2000 is up 9 tenths of 1%. Looking at our high-frequency data that we cover every week, we see that initial jobless claims again for the week ending the 15th of September were 201,000. That was a decrease of almost 9% from a week ago. We saw continuing jobless claims as of September 8th at 1,662,000. That was also a decrease of about 1.5%. Looking at box office receipts for the week ending the 21st of September, another huge drop of almost 35%. Railcar traffic was down, is up actually 9.5%. Steel production for the week ending September 18th was up 7 tenths of 1%. Hotel occupancy for the week ending September 16th was at 67.7%. That was up 12.3% for the week. 
We also saw TSA checkpoint data as of September 21st, 2,360,189 passengers a day passed through TSA checkpoints. That was a 3.1% increase. And the supply of motor gasoline was up 1.2%. And global commercial flights as of September 21st, 128,863 a day. That is up 6 tenths of 1%. Okay, normally I do my global roundup on uh, the uh, Sunday show, but because of the shortened show tomorrow because of the Mariners game, I'm going to cover some of that material today. And as I've kind of mentioned, but global equities were lower in the week as the yield on the U.S. 10-year Treasury note surged as high as 4.5% on the week before drifting down to 4.44%. The price of West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil added another 50 cents a barrel to $90.50, while the price of the barrel of Brent crude reached $95 a barrel. Before easing slightly, volatility is measured by the CBOE Volatility Index, or VIX, rose to 16.8 from 13 a week before. And looking at our global macro news, we saw good news and bad news from the Federal Open Market Committee meeting, which I mentioned earlier, but they did meet, and while they signaled the U.S. recession is less likely, they also telegraphed that interest rates are likely to fall very slowly in the years ahead. As expected, policymakers held rates steady, leaving the upward bound uh, uh, for Fed rates at 5.5%. But what was unexpected was a hawkish shift in policymakers' economic outlook as ex- exhibited in the committee's summary of economic projections. Twelve voters penciled in one additional hike before the end of this year, while only seven expressed the view that rates have, been risen, high, have risen high enough. In June, policymakers forecast 100 basis points. That would be a 1% increase of um, uh, cuts for next uh, or a 1% decrease for next year, though in September they now slashed it to only 50 basis points or a half a percent next year and another half percent in, in 24. The FOMC raises 23 growth outlook to 2.1% from an earlier 1% forecast, lowered its view for peak unemployment to 4.1% down from 4.5% and projected that inflation won't reach its 2% target until 2026. Bottom line, the Fed sees a soft landing, but expects rates to stay higher for even longer. And we also saw that the higher yields in the dollar remain a drag on equities. The Fed's hawkish pause lent fresh momentum to the global bond sell-off, lifting yields in the U.S. in their highest uh, level since uh, prior to the global financial crisis and in Europe to before the sovereign debt crisis. The 10-year U.S. euro yields reached 2.09%, the highest since the end of 2008. Higher yields have bolstered the dollar, keeping it near the top of the recent range against the basket of major currencies. Shares in rich, richly valued technology stocks have been the most negatively impacted by the high, high yield rise, falling just over 5% in the last week as of Thursday evening's close. Dick Donahue with you as well. Wake up. We'll be back there for a quick news break. Thanks for being with us. DeWard and Bodie's three-day sale is this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at all three locations in Bellingham and Burlington. Now is the time to save big on appliances, mattresses, and barbecues with an exclusive offer you won't find at any big box store. DeWard and Bodie will pay your sales tax on hundreds of marked in-stock appliances and mattresses this weekend only. Or they'll give you 24-month no-interest financing with no money down on qualifying items. That's the appliances you want today with no down payment and no interest for two full years. Or DeWard and Bodie will pay your sales tax on hundreds of qualifying in-stock items. If you've been waiting for a deal, now is the time to score on a massive selection of washers and dryers, refrigerators, dishwashers, ranges and cooktops, microwaves and more from top brands like Whirlpool, GE, KitchenAid, Bosch and LG. High-end brands like Thermador, Gen Air, Mila. Experience their massive mattress showroom and take home huge savings on clearance and closeout mattress sets. Don't miss DeWard and Bodie's three-day sale this Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Offer qualifications and restrictions apply. Are you looking for an auto shop that offers honest quality service? Hi, I'm Kirk, owner of Angler Automotive. At Angler Automotive, we strive to make sure that all of your automotive service needs are met. Angler Automotive provides the factory recommended services that are required to maintain your vehicle's warranty. Angler Automotive, outstanding quality with honest, reliable service. Check us out online at anglerautomotive.com. 
KGMI and a grand in your hand gives you a chance to win $1,000 every weekday. But what if you don't? Well, playing a grand in your hand presented by Neater House of Luxury automatically qualifies you for a second chance drawing, a luxurious weekend getaway at Lopez Islander Resort, and blackout golf for 10 at Bali. A grand in your hand brought to you by Neater House of Luxury at Squalicum Harbor in Bellingham, inviting you to an exclusive Gabriel and Company New York trunk show happening September 29th and 30th. It's bad. What do you think their motive is, Chris? What do they want? We're a petri dish. I, I firmly believe that they look at us as nothing like we look at dolphins and whales. We tag them and we send them back out. The UFOs, ghosts, and other paranormal phenomena. They're researching us, so we better start researching them more seriously than what we are right now. And we could be their creation. We could. Coast to Coast is back on KGMI every night, 10 o'clock and beyond. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Harness the power of the sun, reduce your carbon footprint, and save on your energy bills. You can now go solar with West Mechanical Heating, Air Conditioning, and Electrical. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. CBS News Brief. Tropical storm Ophelia is moving inland after making landfall on North Carolina's outer banks. Power outage numbers are going up there and in Virginia as the region gets soaked. Hurricane Center Specialist John Cangelosi. For North Carolina and Virginia, it looks pretty clear starting on Sunday. But especially by later Sunday, and then for the mid-Atlantic, everything looks looks clearer by Monday. A possible government shutdown is a week away, but lawmakers who could avert it have gone home for the weekend. CBS's Christina Ruffini. There are roughly 2.2 million federal employees. Some might be furloughed temporarily, and other essential workers will have to keep coming in, but without a paycheck. Two of the big three automakers have had strikes against them expand. CBS's Michael George. Ford was spared from further strike action Friday after the union said it had made good progress in talks, including securing cost of living and job protections. CBS News Brief. I'm Peter King. And I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died, who gave that right to me. And I gladly stand up. Welcome back to Wolf Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. And we're going to continue on with our global roundup. As I said, it's part of what I usually do on Sunday. But because of the Mariners game coming on at 930 tomorrow, we're kind of mixing some of this in. And basically, as the U.S. fiscal year draws to a close, government shutdown risks are on the rise. Usually, U.S. government funding battles are waged between the Democratic and Republican parties. This year, however, a battle with the Republican caucus and the U.S. House of Representatives is up the odds of Congress failing to pass legislation needed to fund the government beyond the 30th of September. Typically, there is a discrete set of issues that need to be worked out, but this year, a dozen or so representatives, many seeking different objectives, are preventing even agreement on the short-term resolution to keep the government running temporarily until a comprehensive agreement is reached. The Republican razor-thin five-vote majority has empowered the small group of holdouts that has bedeviled the efforts of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to avoid a shutdown. Investors are particularly uncertain over the outcome of this year's battle, budget battle given its unusual dynamics. One upshot of this shutdown that could have an impact soon, uh, impact markets, before, um, would be the suspension of government economic data collection something that's going to keep both investors and the Fed in the dark. We're also seeing that U.S. firms in China are less optimistic, that the percentage of U.S. firms that are optimistic about the five-year business outlook in China fell to 52%, according to a survey conducted by the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai. That's the lowest level of optimism reported since this annual survey was introduced in 1999. 40% of the companies surveyed said that they are redirecting or looking to redirect elsewhere investment that was earmarked for China, up from 34% a year ago. 
We also saw that the Fed was not the only central bank to meet this week. We saw downward inflation surprise allowed the Bank of England to break its streak of 14 consecutive rate hikes this week. The decision to pause was a close call, with five members of the monetary policy voting to pause and four votes voting uh, for a hike. With the economy sluggish and inflation falling, the Bank of England may have reached a peak in its policy rates, though it voted on Thursday to increase its size of its balance sheet runoff by $100 billion annually. The Swiss National Bank also held rates steady on Thursday, while Sweden's Ritz Bank and Norway's Norges Bank both hiked rates and each indicated another hike is likely by the end of the year. On Friday, the Bank of Japan left policy unchanged and did not alter its guidance. We also saw that SUNAC delays its climate measures amid an ongoing cost of living uh, crisis in the United Kingdom, Prime Minister uh, Sunak rolled back some of his government's plans to reach net zero while also touting its world-leading progress to date. Among the measures is a five-year delay in the ban of sale of cars with internal combustion engines. Somebody's got some sense in their head. From 2030 to 2035, he also weakened plans to phase out gas boilers for heating. Sunak said that the debate over net zero is stuck between two extremes, those who want to abandon it and those who want to go further, faster. He wants middle ground, he said. Some of our quick hits for the week, the Financial Times reported the total global uh, debt has reached $307 trillion. That is equivalent to 337% of the world's gross domestic product. And the U.S. National Association of Home Builders Sentiment Index fell to 45 in September from 50 in August. The index peaked at 56 in July after bottoming at 31 in December. U.S. housing starts fell 11.3% month over month in August, while the number of building permits rose to 6.9%. Existing home sales fell 7 tenths of 1% in August. We also saw the Bank of International Settlements warned this week that the uh, basis trades that put in place by hedge funds seeking to exploit small price differentials between U.S. Treasuries and futures contracts linked to Treasuries risk creating market instability. Margin deleveraging, if disorderly, has the potential to dislocate core fixed income markets, it said. And the Paris base. OECD says that 2023 global growth coming in at 3.3%, thanks to a resilient U.S. economy, up from its 2.7% forecast in June. However, its cuts in 24 view it to its, reviewed as it cuts its 2024 view to 2.7% from 2.9% as it expects rate hikes to slow the pace of growth. And the U.S. government debt crossed $33 trillion for the first time. Russia this week banned exports of diesel fuel, further tightening global supplies. The U.S. leading economic indicators fell four-tenths of one percent in August. This is the 17th straight monthly decline. U.S. job claims fell, as I said earlier, to 201,000. That's the lowest level since January. And the Canadian Consumer Price Index jumped 4% in August, up from 3%. 3.3% in July. J.P. Morgan announced this week that India's government bonds will be added to its emerging markets fixed income index in stages beginning in June. When completed in March of 25, India will account for about 10% of the weighted index. Saw an interesting report come out this week talking about housing. And uh, Basically, it said that housing prices are up significantly, as we're aware, from 2020. Mortgage rates are now hovering near 7.5%, the highest of more than two decades. And does this mean we should face, uh, should brace ourselves for another 2000-2008 type housing crisis? Basic assessment of the data says otherwise. Basically, to illustrate that, more detailed picture of the current housing environment, let's take a look at this. As of the first quarter of 2023, a striking 95.2% of outstanding mortgages on fixed are fixed rate loans. That leaves a mere 4.8% 
that are adjustable rate mortgages. Many homeowners purchased or refinanced their homes at much lower interest rates prior to 2022, thereby binding themselves to their existing mortgage, creating a mortgage lock-in phenomenon that is reluctance to sell. In fact, when we examine the total dollar volume of mortgages outstanding, a sagging 70% of those loans are locked in at interest rates at 4% or lower. I'll give you a little breakdown on that in a second. The average interest rate across all mortgages um, currently stands at relatively low 3.7%. In today's market, where 30-year fixed mortgages are double the average interest rate are held in current mortgage holders, the prospect of moving is considerably less enticing and more challenging. So looking at this breakdown of current interest rates on mortgages outstanding, 29.5% of all mortgages out right now are at less than 3%. We see that 38.8% of mortgages are between 3.01% and 4%, that 15.9% of mortgages are between 4.01% and 5 8.7% are between 5.01% and 6%, and 7.1% of all mortgages outstanding are greater than 6%. So basically what we're seeing is that those mortgages have been locked in at those lower rates. The uh, Another thing we're seeing is inventory build. The uh, uh, distinction between our current housing market situation and that in the early 2000s is the scarcity of available inventory. The shortage inventory is primarily attributed to a lack of sellers entering the market. That's a trend that is expected to persist in the foreseeable future. If you examine the most recent data from July of this year, shows that inventories have plunged by 24% compared to the same period of last year. There's also a staggering 47.5% since July of 19. Even though demand has dropped significantly with higher interest rates, inventories continue to remain close to their rock bottom levels, uh, meaning that supply and demand are not out of whack. We're also seeing that the rapid appreciation in the home values over the last few years, coupled with larger down payments and sustained strength in the housing market throughout the past decade, has resulted in a remarkable milestone. Homeowners' equity is a share of overall house home values, has now reached 71.1%. That figure is the highest recorded since 1960, except for the past few quarters showing comparable levels of homeowner equity. So what we're saying here is right now that the average homeowner owns 71.1% of their mortgage. Now, that was down uh, below 50% as recently as 2011 uh, uh, 12 in that range. So, a significant increase in the amount of home equity because of that price increases that we have seen. Dick Donahue with you with Wolf Week of Live. We'll be back after a quick break. Thank you for being with us. Attention homeowners, this is John Barron from Barron Heating, AC, Electrical, and Plumbing. And I'm Brad Barron, CEO with some exciting news. Barron is offering free precision tune-ups and 50% off service memberships to homeowners. As a family-owned and operated business for over 50 years, we strive to be just that, a family you can count on. The areas we serve are growing fast, and the call for HVAC, electrical, and plumbing has never been higher. The Barron Technician School helped us grow to over 30 licensed HVAC service technicians, ready to help 24-7. Our strength and trades partnerships paved the way to Barron's new upfront pricing. Our customers can now easily weigh their options that meet their budget. Our commitment remains the same, improving lives in our community. If you called us over the past three years and we are at capacity, please know we were as disappointed as you. Because of this, we're offering a free precision tune-up and 50% off service memberships to new customers now through September 30th, just to give us another try. Barron Heating, AC, Electrical, and Plumbing. Our mission, improving lives. DeWard and Bodie's three-day sale is this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at all three locations in Bellingham and Burlington. Now is the time to save big on appliances, mattresses, and barbecues with an exclusive offer you won't find at any big box store. DeWard and Bodie will pay your sales tax on hundreds of marked in-stock appliances and mattresses this weekend only. Or they'll give you 24-month no-interest financing with no money down on qualifying items. That's the appliances you want today with no down payment and no interest for two full years. Or DeWard and Bodie 
will pay your sales tax on hundreds of qualifying in-stock items. If you've been waiting for a deal, now is the time to score on a massive selection of washers and dryers, refrigerators, dishwashers, ranges and cooktops, microwaves and more from top brands like Whirlpool, GE, KitchenAid, Bosch and LG, plus high-end brands like Thermador, Gen Air, Mila. Experience their massive mattress showroom and take home huge savings on clearance and closeout mattress sets. Don't miss DeWard and Bodie's three-day sale this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Offer qualifications and restrictions apply. Because there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. Welcome back to Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. As always, we appreciate your being with us. And if you have questions for us, Give us a call, 360-733-1200. And, you know, we've been kind of one of those that have uh, debated the wisdom of the legislature passing the uh, Washington State CARES Act. And uh, their commission, oversight commission, met this week and uh, made some recommendations. I'm going to talk a little bit about what came down out of that meeting and uh, basically what's the latest in that CARES Act. And we found that, you know, basically for those that aren't familiar, it's a new worker funded program in the state that supposedly will benefit some Washingtonians, regardless of their high or low income status and whether or not they have the resources available for long term care. So basically, the long term services and supports or LTSS Trust Commission met from 1 to 4 p.m. on Tuesday. They voted on the various recommendations to the legislature to again tweak the CARES Act and attempt to make it more palatable for those that are now paying 0.58 cents for every $100. That is an income tax, no other way to say it, for something that they may never benefit from. Basically, the recommendations only... the, the, the recommendations only remind us why Washington Care should be repealed. The program is not the right solution for Washingtonians who won't need long-term care or qualify for it, nor is it the best solution for those who will. Many workers, including low-income ones, are being harmed by this new payroll tax. Highlights of the meeting are as follows. The biggest takeaway one that changes eligibility for Washington care for all workers paying into the program was a recommendation that the commission will be making to increase the work requirement needed to gain qualifying year of care. The requirement would go from 500 hours to 1,000 hours. So that means in the past, somebody that worked 500 hours in a year could have qualified. That requirement is going to double and go to 1,000 hours. Now, basically, 500 hours is about 25% time. 1,000 hours would be about half time. Normal work year is somewhere around 2,000 hours a year. So basically also... As a reminder, the worker needs to pay into the CARE Act for at least 10 years without a break or five or more years and work at least that 500 hours each of those years in order to meet that requirement. This provision will make the long-term care benefit difficult to achieve for many family caregivers. You know, if also thought this recommendation was voted on affirmatively, it would be limited to workers who seek a portable benefit if it becomes available, but that's not so. The recommendation is for all workers. We also saw the Employment Security Department continues to be impressed by its outreach and communication efforts. Press releases it sent out resulted in positive media coverage, the commission was told. The state's aggressive marketing campaign to try and get people to take Washington care is part of the reason the costs for the program keep increasing. The, and also the number of self-employed workers who voluntarily have chose to help out of the program is 355. And that's according to the Employment Security Department. They'll continue to be pursued. Basically, they want you to pay into it. But they're not automatically required to pay the tax for Washington CARES, as W-2 employees are, nor do they have the chance to qualify for a benefit unless they voluntarily opt into Washington CARES. Also, the number of workers on non-immigrant visas who have applied by, for an exemption from the CARES Act since they were able to in January this year is 24,495. These non-residents are considered among the least likely to ever qualify for the CARES benefit. 
they are one of the only four groups of workers who are still able to seek a exemption. The others are workers who live out of state, military spouses, and veterans with a 70% or higher service connectivity disability. The Office of the State Action Area anticipates the next uh, baseline analyst of the future solvency of the CARES Act conducted by Millman, which is an independent risk management firm, is going to be filed in the fall of 24. Solvency is dependent on many moving parts. Millman explained economic assumptions will be updated as will demographic changes in the state's population and the number of additional exemptions granted after January of 23. We also saw the minimum provider qualifications as requirements for equipment, travel, and home modifications that the care benefit recipients might want to use the money for were also uh, discussed. They, they were then recommended and voted on affirmatively by the commission. Also approved for moving forward for lawmakers was work group recommendations about the portability of the Washington CARES benefit. These included the incorporation of a 90-day forward certification of need, adoption of a HIPAA-style benefit threshold for out-of-state residents, and allowing the State Investment Board to invest trust reserves in a diversified portfolio, including equities which would require voter approval. You may remember in 2020, voters said they could not invest that money in equities. Now, FYI, all of the state retirement plans are invested in a portfolio of equities. And so that one needs to be revisited, truly needs to be revisited. Further, because what's going to happen is the lower the rate of return on those reserves, the more money that's going to take in the long run in order to provide benefits. And so if you if you'd lower the rate of return on the pool of money that's being taken out of the employee's paycheck, that means that you're going to have to increase the amount taken out of paychecks in the long run to make up for the fact that you're not making as much money on that money as you could. So anyway, further, the recommendations also included requiring individuals to contribute to Washington CARES for three years in the state before becoming eligible to participate in portability, and finally also increasing work requirements to uh, earn a qualifying year with the CARES Act of from 500 to 100 to 1,000 hours, as I mentioned earlier. So summing it up, throughout the meeting, were reminders that there's a lot of uncertainty and many unknowns about the CARES Act's financial shape. It's a new program, and for that reason, it was surprised to see that the recommendation for a portable coverage option. Many people are clamoring for one, but a portability option has been seen as likely to hurt the fund's ability to pay its way. The cough offset workshop group also seems to have th uh, threaded the needle to make portability possible. But with the hurdles of benefit eligibility, eligibility is also riddled with requirements that make the Washington CARES benefit off limits for many workers paying in, including the right now in, in state residency, vesting, and health requirements. So with or without portability, the solvency picture of the CARES Act was going to require that the rate of 58.58% increase on the, for the lifetime benefit. The lifetime benefit of 36500 is already inadequate. If you sit down and calculate how long that lifetime benefit is, it might cover three to three and a half months if you're lucky at today's prices. Okay, there was a worry that has part of uh, probability on its side. The state's payroll tax for paid family medical leave also has risen. That's a separate payroll tax that went in a couple, three years ago. It went from 0.40% now to 0.8%, almost 1% of your payroll. And that's in its couple, three years it's just been in place. As for workers' compensation payroll tax, a story in the Tacoma News Tribune says that a new proposal by the State Department of Labor and Industries would have workers and employers <coughs> paying an additional $65 a year for each full-time employee. 4.9% increase from current workers and compensation rates. Also, is a question about it being income tax-free. It's getting harder. Is the state really income tax or state without income tax? Payroll taxes feel like income taxes. Take in that 8 tenths of 1% family leave. Take in another 0.58% for the long-term care. You know, payroll taxes... Uh, basically, they're coming off the top. You also have your property tax. You have burdensome carbon tax now that you're paying, which is the second highest amount in the nation for, for gas. You have that capital gains tax. 
You have a high sales tax, which is largely regressive tax that Democrats have refused to slash, even in times of inflation and state budget surpluses and others. And for all these reasons, because of ever-complicated qualification criteria for this new state-imposed long-term care program, as they demonstrated in their meeting on Tuesday, Washington care needs to be repealed. We're hurting the state's workers. We're we're including especially low-income ones. In many cases, they're being forced to give a portion of their income over to benefit others, others who may not be in need of taxpayer generosity. We also saw a safety net for people needing long-term care already exist in Medicaid. Lawmakers should be busy strengthening and protecting it instead of creating a safety net for people not in need. We need to repair, repeal the Washington CARES and opt-in legislation is being sought. The next legislative session, there will be bills to kill the Washington CARES Act. This is not expected to be heard or considered by the majority Democrats who control it. However, a July 11th the Seattle Times story reported that Democrats don't think that even the recent proposal to let workers choose whether they want to participate in Washington CARES had a shot. Another path for making Washington CARES optional is an initiative to the legislature, which let's go, uh, called Let's Go Washington. The group is collecting signatures for Initiative 2124. And for now, possibly for, uh, for all of those working years, regardless of how young or old you are, you can look at your paycheck, see how much your pay is being decreased by the government for a program that you're told gives you peace of mind, even though it doesn't. A, net, a calculator showing how much Washington Care will cost you over your lifetime is available at, at the Washington Care's website. This has been Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here on KGMI. I want to thank you for being with us today. Encourage you to listen to our show tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. It'll be a short show, half hour, but uh, Mariners following at 9.30. So go M's and uh, have a great week. Thanks for being with us. voiced on the show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision.